Welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Centre for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is the second episode of a four-part beta strategy series titled Factor Investing in Alternatives and is for institutional and professional investors. During today's episode, we provide the case for alternative beta, how to capture it, and how institutions are using it. I'm George Blake, a consultant advisor within our North America institutional business at JP Morgan, and I'll be the moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Garrett Norman, an investment specialist, and Victor Lee, a portfolio manager and head of alternative beta research within our quantitative beta strategies team at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Garrett, maybe we should begin by defining what we mean by alternative beta or alternative risk premia, as we often call it. In our minds, alternative beta is a subcategory within factor-based investing. It represents the long, short capture of factors. So some of those things that are common to us on the long-only space, such as tilting towards value or towards momentum or towards quality, What we mean within alternative beta is to implement on a long short basis where you might rank stocks or other financial instruments on a value property, go long the most attractive and short the least attractive. What I think is powerful about this concept is that through that long short implementation, you isolate away from traditional market risk. So you're able to capture return with no sensitivity to equities or fixed income or commodities. So to be classed as alternative beta, does it have to have long short exposure? Exactly. And, and for us, that's the, the, the separator of the two camps, that strategic beta and alternative beta would both sit in the realm of factor investing. Alternative beta would represent the long short capture of factors. Okay, great. So that really nicely sets the scene. So getting into the weeds a little bit, why have they become so popular with institutional clients? It's certainly a popular topic amongst a wide range of institutional clients and you know, I think there's two main areas or, or outcomes that investors are looking for, one of which is a diversification to traditional asset classes, and the other is perhaps a complement or replacement for hedge fund exposures, um, something that I, I think we can touch on later today. What's interesting is that in a, in a recent survey of the space, around three quarters of institutional investors are looking for alternative beta strategies for that diversification element. And so this is a much higher proportion than what we had seen prior, where it is more balanced between the diversification and hedge fund complement or replacement angles. You know, I I think a key consideration here is naturally where we're sitting within the current economic cycle. So us at JP Morgan with our long-term capital market assumptions are expecting lower than average returns in both equity and fixed income markets. Um, We also know that many of our institutional clients have concentrated risk exposures in the equity portion of the portfolio, which frankly they they need in some ways uh, insofar as their requirement to reach very high investment hurdles. So the idea of alternative beta as a liquid, low-cost, alternative return source is especially crucial given this market backdrop. And Victor, maybe you could touch a little bit on how we capture the alternative risk premium. I think how to efficiently capture the uh, risk premium uh, alternative beta has been the focus of our team, quantum beta strategy team. 
In general, uh, in order to capture the different underlying risk premium, we tend to construct our strategy bottom-up using uh, individual securities across the different asset classes. So this is different from the uh, so-called top-down hedge fund replication, where the strategy is often implemented using uh, indices or index futures based on a regression uh, analysis or regression loadings. Um, so if I uh, take our market-neutral active long-short uh, strategy as an example, this is a strategy designed to capture value, momentum, and quality risk premium in a market-neutral fashion. First of all, the starting point of such a, uh, of, uh, such a strategy is uh, we use uh, S&P broad market index as a starting universe, comparing to uh, MSCI World, which is another uh, large-cap global developed universe, but um, there's only 1,600 stocks. Uh, the BMI index actually has around 3,000 to 4,000 uh, stocks to begin with. This added breadth uh, across the broader range of market cap spectrum means that the risk premium uh, capture uh, is more effective because the factors themselves tend to be more pronounced when implemented in a wider uh, market cap spectrum compared to um, implementing in a, a large cap universe. We construct our long-short portfolio based on the relative attractiveness of the stock within the universe uh, in a multi-factor uh, setup using a combination of value, momentum, and quality. So those factors are constructed using uh, multiple different uh, sub-components uh, or uh, matrix uh, again. Uh, in the case of value factor, we use a combination of price to book, price to earning, price to cash flow, and dividend yield. So for instance, we can rank individual stocks based on the price to book ratio within the sector and then within the region to ensure a like-to-like -like comparison. So this ranking is also known as a sector and regional neutralized ranking. In a similar fashion, we can rank them based on other valuation uh, metrics uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, and then we finally combine this to get a valuation composite rank. The significance of this is that we um, almost wanted to be agnostic to the choice of a particular uh, valuation matrix. Uh, a set of different valuation ratio uh, would mean a more diversified capture uh, of the factor risk premium, which tends to lead to a, a more robust performance out of sample. So besides value, there's also um, this is also true to momentum and quality, where the factors are constructed uh, based on a diversified set of uh, components. Uh, each covering a slightly different uh, aspects. So finally, we combine value, momentum, quality into a so-called aggregate score uh, in a risk-balanced way. The top-ranked stocks uh, based on this score will, of course, uh, be the more uh, attractive, uh, i.e. our long candidates, and then the bottom-ranked stocks will be our short uh, candidates. The long-short portfolio is constructed in a beta-neutral fashion. Victor, we spoke about compensated versus uncompensated risk factors. Is that equally as important in the alternative risk premium space? Yeah, definitely. I think it's quite important to acknowledge the difference between the two. So first of all, to us, the factor is just a description of risk, nothing more and nothing less. However, uh, you can differentiate the factors into uh, two camps, uh, uncompensated factor uh, versus compensated uh, uh, factors. The uncompensated factors are the ones with no expected economic return. Uh, examples can include um, region or sector. 
um, because uh, a long-term or uh, persistent uh, overweight or underweight along those dimensions over long-term will not necessarily give you a positive expected return. Uh, however, on the other hand, the compensated factors are the ones with a positive uh, economic return over the long term. Uh, that's why they also uh, are known as a risk premium. So typically, those positive expected return um, uh, can be explained by a, a variety of different uh, reasons or economic rationales, and those reasons uh, tend to fall into uh, three categories. They can be risk-based, so uh, in other words, those are a compensation for taking on a specific type of risk. Uh, they can also be a behavior-based. This is basically saying market is not perfectly efficient. Uh, market participants can have a behavior biases. And then finally, the existence can also be due to the market structure uh, themselves. Garrett, how can alternative beta be a replacement or a potential complement to a client's hedge fund exposures? So this is a really interesting question, and I think gets to the root of what hedge fund managers are providing. In our research, which has extended many of the concepts that we've seen academically over the past few decades, is that a large proportion of hedge fund returns can be explained by so-called factors or an alternative beta style of investing. Victor provided the example in the equity long short space where factors we well know from a long only context, things like value, momentum, and quality, when you invest on a long short basis can map to or closely approximate what equity long short hedge funds have delivered. We see that same principle extending across a variety of hedge fund styles, from the equity long short space to the event driven space to the macro managed future space. All told, in our research, systematic or alternative beta strategies can access around 80% of the hedge fund industry as determined by assets under management. Um, this is to say that alternative beta is not a complete replacement for hedge fund exposures in the sense that it cannot replicate or approximate certain illiquid strategies such as distressed debt or long short credit or certain highly leveraged strategies such as fixed income relative value. And we're also by no means saying that there is not alpha on top of these alternative beta return sources that hedge fund managers can deliver. This is really about just separating the concepts of alpha and beta. As we have in the traditional equity space, you know, currently you evaluate an equity manager versus the index versus market beta to see if there is any idiosyncratic manager skill. In our minds, the idea of alternative beta can extend directly into the hedge fund sphere again, allowing us to determine which hedge fund exposures can be accessed systematically in a liquid, low-cost, and transparent manner. And then in excess of that, what is the true alpha or idiosyncratic skill that certain hedge fund managers can provide? I think this might be a good opportunity to maybe go into a little bit uh, deeper here with some of those factors, maybe merge it up, for example. Yeah, definitely. I think that's actually one of the uh, very good examples. So uh, this is a classic hedge fund strategy, of course, uh, in the event-driven space where the investor would um, uh, invest in the stocks involved in the M&A activities. So I think ordinarily one would think such an uh, event-driven strategy would be highly idiosyncratic because each hedge, uh, hedge fund manager, of course, can take on different views on the individual deals they can overweight or underweight, or they can be very selective in which deal they, they want or they don't want to hold. 
But what is quite striking is that a very simple systematic merger arbitrage strategy that systematically invests in all the available deals subject to uh, uh, simple liquidity filters can actually replicate the hedge fund merger arb uh, index. So this is HFRX uh, uh, merger arb index uh, extremely well over the long term. So this systematic strategy is, of course, capturing the beta portion of uh, such an event-driven strategy. And uh, as Garrett mentioned, we argue that hedge fund managers increasingly would need to uh, justify their uh, fees based on their performance relative to or in access to the corresponding beta strategy. So at Quantity Beta Strategy Team, we focus on the systematic capture of those alternative beta and hedge fund beta strategy through ongoing uh, quantitative research on the underlying risk premium, portfolio construction, and uh, innovative uh, trading techniques, we ultimately seek to deliver those alternative beta strategy in a highly efficient, liquid, and transparent fashion. Victor, maybe you could touch on the other factors uh, which, which you focus on in addition to merger arbitrage? Obviously, merger arb strategy is a strategy we have had since inception in um, 2009. Over the years, the team has actually spent a lot of time researching into other type of uh, event-driven strategies. So this is really a result of uh, around 18 months of uh, uh, research. We uh, actually managed to introduce five additional uh, event-driven strategies. So this include share buyback, conglomerate discount arbitrage, shareholder activism, index reconstitution arbitrage, and then finally uh, post-reorg equity. So similar to merger arbitrage, so all of those uh, uh, strategy can be systematically captured. Each one of them is associated with a different type of a corporate event. All of them have been pretty well documented in the academic literature and widely adopted in the hedge fund world. So if we take conglomerate discount arbitrage, for example, so this is a strategy uh, linked to uh, spin-off. It is well known that conglomerate tends to trade at a discount to the sum of its parts. Normally, after the spin-off is announced, a revaluation will be triggered in the market because more performer earnings and balance sheet data of each component will be made available after the uh, um, spin-off announcement. And then some literature also cites uh, improved focus on company's core business as another reason why spin-off can lead to a positive valuation effect. So in such a strategy, we would systematically invest in the parent company after the official announcement of the spin-off and hedging out the equity beta exposure using the corresponding index future. We will unwind our positions by selling both the parent uh, as well as the spin call after the spin-off uh, effective date. Great. Thank you, Victor. And just changing direction a little bit now, um, one of the terms that we hear sort of floated around quite a lot is machine learning. Is there any sort of relationship between machine learning and alternative beta? Yes. So um, machine learning definitely has, uh, has been a very popular topic. So machine learning is actually a branch of uh, artificial intelligence. It is a broad term for a wide range of uh, computer algorithms and uh, statistical techniques designed to identify relationship or structures in the data. Uh, although machine learning and AI have existed uh, since the late 50s, they have been emerging as a very powerful tool in the quantitative investment uh, as well as alternative beta. As more and more data sets become available uh, in a structured or unstructured format, 
uh, advanced machine learning models can be utilized to gain insight or uh, detect patterns that are previously impossible to identify. It is definitely a, a crucial area of a research focus in the quantity beta strategy team. And over the years, we have invested a lot of time and effort in the space uh, with the aim uh, to in, uh, enhance our uh, alternative beta strategy. So one example is our news filter process. The idea of news filter originated from actually merge up strategy because such a strategy is very time sensitive and uh, there's a natural reliance uh, on a third-party vendor database. But we often find the data coming from the vendor database is subject to delay. How do we address this? One way to address this is, of course, to have human being manually checking through uh, thousands of news release on a daily basis. The problem with that is that, A, you know, there's uh, well over half a million uh, news articles per year uh, that one would need to read through. And then to make it worse, only 2% of those uh, news are actually deemed relevant. So not only is this very difficult, but it's incredibly boring. So what we did was that we trained a machine learning algorithm to process and analyze the uh, natural language embedded within the news article uh, to identify uh, a subset that are relevant to us. So interestingly, where uh, this application really turned out to be very useful is also for our launch or equity strategy. Because what we care in such a strategy is to capture the value, momentum, quality, uh, factor risk premium uh, in a market neutral fashion. So if a company is subject to a strong takeover rumor, uh, there's of course a chance that, that the price uh, will spike if the rumor turned out to be true. Um, so we certainly want to avoid having a short position uh, in those names. So based on this principle, we simply incorporated a not too short list uh, based on the output of this machine learning-based news filter. So this significantly reduced the binary uh, event risk within the portfolio. And then we are very proud. We actually have won a number of international in, uh, industry awards for the use of machine learning in our portfolio management process. We've spoken a little bit now about how we construct our portfolios, but let's take a little bit of a step back and go back to the client. Maybe, Garrett, you could provide some case studies, perhaps, for how you've seen clients use uh, alternative risk premium within their portfolios? Sure, absolutely. And I think this gets back to you know, the original case for what's the, what's the outcome investors are looking for. There's a camp that is looking solely for a diversified source of returns that will be uncorrelated to traditional equity and fixed income investments. And there's another camp that's looking to complement or replace hedge fund strategies. So actually at, at JP Morgan and our quantitative beta strategies teams, we have two differentiated strategies or solutions. One that uses factors to build up to those hedge fund styles. So as Victor was alluding to with our equity long short model or the merger arbitrage and other event-driven models, that would be one case. Uh, the second would be a more explicit style investing strategy that sole purpose is to isolate value, momentum, quality, and carry across asset classes. When we've seen clients look to allocate, depending on where they sit in those camps is how they think of the allocation itself. Whether it would fall into a hedge fund allocation or an alternative category, that would naturally be the hedge fund beta camp of the world, or whether the sole purpose is diversification. And in many cases, clients have explicitly labeled allocation buckets as so-called diversifying strategies, which can be a catch-all for alternative beta, 
real estate, uh, certain other alternatives that show diversifying properties to traditional equity and fixed income markets. You know, I'd say if I look through the, the progression of our client conversations over the years, we primarily started with usage on that hedge fund side of the table. So looking to really just improve liquidity and fees associated with existing hedge fund allocation buckets and are more recently seeing a greater split between those that are just seeking access to factors versus the hedge fund side of the coin. Great, thank you. This is a difficult one, but I think it's probably time we address the uh, the elephant in the room, which is the underwhelming performance of alternative risk premium strategies year to date. Maybe you could talk us a little bit through sort of why they've underperformed and what needs to sort of change into the market for them to sort of pick back up again. So it certainly has been a, a challenging and interesting market environment here in 2018 that we're seeing for our strategies as well as a, a number of the peers that we um, that we track. You know, the, the root cause of the difficulty does come down to the equity value factor. So we mentioned earlier that any individual factor is highly cyclical and can be very difficult to own. The way that we typically deal with this cyclicality is to combine factors into multi-factor, multi-strategy portfolios. What we've seen this year is just that the extent of the value drawdown has overwhelmed some of the other return sources in alternative beta portfolios. And actually, the correlation benefits have held. So even just thinking in within the equity factor space, on a long short basis, momentum is positive for the year. Quality is flat to positive for the year. However, value is amidst its third worst drawdown dating back to 1990. And the extent to which the value factor has declined has really brought down the entire exposure. What I think's worth commenting on as, as we think about underwhelming performance is the opportunity set this could create. Um, in last week's episode, uh, there was a discussion around convergent versus divergent factors. And importantly, value would sit in the camp as a convergent factor. So as value is selling off, that increases the value of the value factor. When we look to evaluate the richness or cheapness of factors, we build up from the underlying constituents. So we'll take, for example, in that S&P developed broad market index, look at the price to earnings ratio, the price to book ratio, a range of metrics on the top quartile of value stocks versus the bottom quartile of value stocks and compare that to history. You know, naturally, value stocks tend to be cheaper than growth, but how much cheaper are they than growth from a historical context? And alongside the drawdown in the factor, we have seen the opportunity set improve. You know, another interesting characteristic, I'd say, of the value factor is the distribution of returns over time. So value actually has a positive skew. Um, in other words, the returns tend to be chunky and happen in short batches. Dating back again to our, our records beginning in 1990, actually the top 20 months have explained around 75% of the performance of the value factor. And so as we sit here today in the midst of a significant drawdown, it might be hard for us to predict when the paradigm will shift back in favor of value over growth. But we do expect that when that flip occurs, that it will be a quick and sharp rebound. 
Victor, moving on now to uh, risk management, what would you say are the most important risk management considerations when managing these type of strategies? So I think when it comes to risk management, I think related to what uh, Garrett has mentioned, I think it is very important to take a long-term perspective. Uh, so this is reflected in the calibration of our strategy. Um, so of course, there are lots of moving parts, a different type of risk premium across different asset, class, uh, asset classes. Uh, however, uh, when it comes to portfolio construction and uh, risk management, it is really important that you know, we calibrate the different strategy based on the long-term calibration. So what that means is if there's any short-term uh, reversal, volatility uh, space, or any uh, changes in the correlation structure, the calibration of the of the fund would mean that uh, it will not overly uh, reacting to the short-term changes across those uh, aspects. I think that is uh, really crucial, as Garrett mentioned, uh, in light of what happened year to date. Our long-term calibration would mean that the fund will not deleveraging or reduce uh, allocation uh, from uh, value or from any other uh, asset class. So I think that is very important. The other thing I would like to mention is the opportunity set, uh, as well as the dynamic aspect on the asset class level, as well as on the fund level. Although across each individual factor, the calibration is based on long term, so we will have a, a very steady risk uh, over the long term. However, at any given point, this can be quite dynamic on the asset class level. So this is true in the managed future space. Uh, if FX carry uh, wants to long the high carry currency, such as uh, Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar, and maybe short a Japanese yen, but FX momentum is the other way around. Uh, so will allow the different factor to offset each other. Naturally, this is a reflection of uh, overall low conviction. So when this happens on the asset class level, um, the allocation will be reduced, uh, and this is by design. This is also true in the event-driven space where our allocation scheme is actually uh, linked to the deal activity level. Take merger arbitrage as example. Over the long term, merger arbitrage has um, on average around 70 deals. So if you are in the environment, if there's only uh, half of that long-term number, it wouldn't make sense uh, if you force yourself to lever up to the same level of notional or risk. So when that happens, we actually uh, will proportionally allocate based on the number of events. So that, again, is a reflection of the, uh, of the opportunity set. So we allow things to uh, be dynamic uh, based on the overall opportunity set. So I think uh, all those two elements are very important consideration uh, in our risk management process. And I, I think that long-term perspective that, that Victor was hitting on is so crucial in these types of strategies and how they're managed from an investment perspective. You know, as Victor alluded to in the first quarter, we saw a significant pickup in volatility across markets in February. For our strategies, that did not lead to any de-risking or delevering. We moved from having below average risk in January to being right in our expected risk ranges through the middle of February. So we're able to retain exposures and hopefully come through to the other side. So Victor, what would you say is, uh, is next on the agenda for you? What's at the forefront of your research at the moment? We uh, continue doing a lot of research uh, across all different asset classes. I think one thing that is quite exciting is on the fixed income credit side. Compared to equity, of course, uh, fixed income research is significantly more complex, uh, mainly due to uh, the dimensionality of the um, uh, underlying data. And uh, one uh, particular challenge is uh, how can we uh, build the connectivity uh, between uh, the credit side and the corresponding uh, equity side? 
for example, uh, if we have a linkage uh, to link between the two databases, one could use the fundamental ratios from the equity side to help the security selection on fixed income. And that was exactly what we have been working on. The team really have spent lots of effort on building that um, database. And then our initial uh, research also shows that some of the uh, commonly used uh, factors uh, in equity actually perform pretty well uh, in the fixed income and credit space. So uh, we are incredibly excited and we think, uh, you know, we will uh, definitely be able to uh, deliver some more strategy uh, in this space. Brilliant. Thank you, Victor. And I think that sort of brings us to a conclusion. Uh, I just want to say, Victor, Garrett, thank you very much for joining us on the Centre for Investment Excellence. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on the JP Morgan Centre for Investment Excellence. This episode was the second in a four-part beta strategy series with the upcoming bi-weekly episode focusing on fixed income and the final episode focusing on factor crowding, timing and cycles. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continued professional development on their CE tracker. If you have found our insights useful, You can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. This episode was recorded on the 20th of June, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, 
or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355E. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC. And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.